So you're about to hear an interview with my friend Everett Sands, who's a banking expert and the CEO of Lendistry, a small business lender. We had a fascinating conversation on how the digital age has transformed the banking industry and little known tips about how your bank can help you make your money work for you. I had this conversation with Everett several months ago before the the fall of SVB and First Republic. And I wanted to talk to him again to hear how this banking crisis affects the industry and all of us. So after the break, you'll hear my second interview with Everett. We taped just two weeks ago. Enjoy. Welcome to Moneymaker, the podcast that gives you the tools to enrich your life in every sense of the word. I'm your host, Nelly Galan. Let's get started. So I'm so excited to speak to Everett Sands, my friend and someone who I've collaborated with a lot, who is the CEO and founder of Lendistry, which is a weird bird of a company because you're a fintech (laughs) and you're a CDFI, which can you explain what a CDFI is? A CDFI is a community development financial institution. And the reason why we are both a fintech and a CDFI is because when you think about access to capital, we serve undercapitalized, underserved uh, entrepreneurs mainly, but their communities as well. There's no silver bullet. So we kind of looked at two different things. We were like, okay, most people have a cell phone. They might not have a desktop. They might not have access to traditional home computer, but they have a cell phone. So we got to meet them where they're at, which means having the technology to be able to get to them and access to them. But we also needed those community programs that help those who might not have the best credit profiles, might not be able to walk into kind of a, a bank or a traditional kind of lending situation. So we had to create a hybrid institution. So we had to be a fintech and a CDFI. To explain it to people that might not know what either of these things are, yep. you're kind of like an online bank, but that also has a mission yep. to serve underprivileged people and give loans to those people and try to bank for those people. That's correct. We're the lending side. So we don't do deposits, but it's really a focus on access to capital, but access to capital at scale. The unfortunate thing is underserved, undercapitalized keeps growing. Like every day it's getting larger and larger and larger. So you used to be able to kind of put it in a pot and say, okay, I'm going to put blacks in here and I'm going to put Hispanic Latinos in here. And then, you know, but now it's literally like everybody. Well, the reason I just love this whole thing is because when we talk about like a fintech meets a CDF, it sounds really boring, right. and like a boring <laughs> feel. But I want to tell everybody how I met you sure. and then why I also fell in love with this whole area and why we all need to know about it. Yeah. So we met when I had written my book, Self Made, and I was touring the country right. and we were at a banking event with a lot of bankers. Yes. I was speaking at a banking event about minorities being underserved in banking. And you were like, the first person I saw that kind of looked like me. Right. And I'm like, who's this black guy <laughs> that's in banking and has been in banking for so many years. Yeah. And Lendistry was like a baby at that point. Yeah. And now you've loaned over $9 billion. So it's a lot. I mean, you've just done a lot in the last few years. You've gotten me so excited about yeah. banking <laughs> when banking is even for me, a very big trauma because as an immigrant that left a communist regime and my parents lost all of their money in a bank, I have always had a lot of insecurity around banking. And so I thought maybe today you could unpack all this for us. How did you get into banking? So it all starts with my family. My mom's an entrepreneur. My dad's an entrepreneur. My cousin's an entrepreneur. And really the patriarch of all of it is my grandfather. So my grandfather started a tailoring shop where everyone had to work there. I am not by any means a tailor and I'm (laughs) not an artist. So I got to sweep the floors and I got to work the cash register. 
But in the midst of all that, there's the good part of the story and the bad part of the story. The good part of the story is we have a couple of tailoring shops still in D.C. It was kind of the springboard for lots of entrepreneurs. The other side of the story that's not really told much is that we had five different locations. They lived in this place in D.C. called Rock Creek Park. And if you know D.C. well, it's a nice area. But I never got to live there. I was the kid who drove past and my parents would say, oh, we used to live there. And we used to have these locations. So I was like, you know, parents don't tell you everything when you're a kid. Like, what do you mean we used to? Like, why don't we have it now? Why would you sell it? So in my mind, I'm thinking, you guys are idiots. Why would you sell this thing? (laughs) Right? What I later found out is it was foreclosure. Oh, my God. And my grandfather got bad financial advice, bad tax advice. And he lost a lot. And he was able, like most entrepreneurs are, to be resilient and build some things back up. But I lived this kind of life of like, what if? So I'm just like trying to figure it out. Then I go to a boarding school. And when I go to boarding schools in New Hampshire, I meet these twin girls who are amazing. And I don't know anything about them. But my roommate at the time was like, do you know them? And I was like, no. He's like, those are the Walton twins. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he was like, have you ever heard of a store called Walmart? And I'm like, of course, dummy. Everybody's heard about the store Walmart. And he's like, those are the grandkids. Anyway, so get to know a little bit more about the story. And their grandfather needed money. And their grandfather got a loan for $39,000. So you can imagine growing up, we're kind of going through the motion of my grandfather didn't get it. And I've seen these things happen. That is such a deep story of pain, right? Yeah. So it was kind of like this what if. And so that led me more into, I got to know why he didn't get this access. You know, I'll never truly know. But what it did lead me down a road to say, Okay, I'm going to make sure that this doesn't happen to my grandfather again. And my grandfather translates into 600,000 or so businesses that we've supported. I got to make sure this is not my grandfather. This is not that situation. But that's how I got started in all this. I always say in your pain is your brand, right? right. So, And when you follow your pain, you find a solution for it. That's right. So you've spent 20-some years in banking, and you decided to do this on your own. And why did you do that? My history is from that boarding school, and I'm going to Penn. If you know anything about Penn, it's like where the legends of Wall Street are made, right? But I don't want to go to New York. I don't want to go suited and booted and do all that. Ended up getting into the mortgage business. But more important to the story, I ended up sitting on the board of an African-American bank. So I'm 20-some years old. Everybody's 30 years my senior. They're talking to me about banks and all these different things. And I'm like, I know the textbook. I know what the textbook says. But they're really teaching me how to be the janitor to the executive. I ended up starting a mortgage company, selling it to another black bank, going there. And then I work at Wells Fargo on the East Coast and the West Coast, and that's how I got to California. But through all of this, what was really interesting to me is having been at the minority banks, there were all these things that as I got to larger institutions like Wells Fargo, and as I started to grow, I started to say, I wish I could tell them this. I wish I could tell them about this. If they did this, this would have happened. Look, and if anybody knows the crisis in the U.S. has been minority deposit institutions, the numbers have dwindled. You've seen their counterparties or their peers grow massively in the billions. Today, there's one that has a billion dollars, maybe two if you include um, certain banks, but you know, just not the masses by any means. And then the communities that they serve, wealth gaps still persist, no matter how you look at it. So the answer to your question is, at some point, you just kind of say, can I be part of the solution or am I part of the problem? And so Lindishu was created so that I could be part of the solution. My thought process was, 
okay, I'm at Wells Fargo, I'm running a team, top in the country in LMI lending, top in the country in minority lending, but is there something bigger that could be done? And the thought process was, if we were to step out and if we were to be partners to banks, we could probably do things at even a larger scale. That's how Lendishu was created. Well, I think, you know, again, going back to the boringness that people think of banks, yep. and yet, you know, when we put our money in banks, banks make a lot of money. When you and I went through the pandemic, all these little fintechs came up that yeah. were kind of the go-between yeah. the government who couldn't figure out how to reach these people and the people who couldn't fill out the paper forms. And yeah. they were like in the in-between and they made billions of dollars, yeah. right? So there is a lot of money in banking, but there's also a lot of distrust in banking. Yeah. So I think it would be great if we could unpack it for people. Sure. I, as someone who have horrible fear with banks, as you know, so many immigrants come to this country from dictatorships and from places where the banking system collapsed. Americans don't think that's possible, but it's <laughs> almost happened in this country quite a few times. Yeah. Can we really go back to the basics? What is the bank there to do for me? The bank is there, first of all, to hold your money and then- act Safely. Safely, which in the US is defined as $250,000 or below. And then it is also there to be a consultant to you on financial matters. And that's the part where it's failed. <laughs> that hasn't gone very well. Finally, when somebody told yeah. me that, I went and found, in my case, a Latina that looked like me in a bank. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And she's been my banker or my consulting banker because now she's retired yeah. for 25 years. Yeah. So I went and did that. Is it on us to do that or should the bank be reaching out to me? Let's go through the numbers and then we'll come backwards. So okay. 10 years ago, there were 10,000 banks set at a billion in assets and below. And those are defined as community banks. Right. So you could go to your local neighborhood. You can kind of choose based on. Is that a Chase or something? Or is that different? Chase has been big. But if you go back to Chase's history, there was Bank One. If you go back to Bank of America's history, you know, Bank of America's history, it was a bank for fishermen in California who needed to finance the fishing industry. So that could be their boat, that could be their nets, that could be different things like that. So Wells Fargo was a bank that was for miners. If you were going west and you wanted to dig for gold and you need to finance your tools, that was Wells Fargo. The stagecoach and all that was related because the postal service got involved because Wells Fargo had a better delivery system than the postal service. And during one of the wars, <laughs> they needed to leverage their delivery system for weapons. So this is kind of the story that's untold, but the answer is all banks start out as community banks, all of them. There used to be 10,000 of them. So you could, based on your neighborhood, your culture, your language, anything, you could kind of go to the bank that belongs to you. Today, we still have a little bit of that. But generally speaking, it was anything, anything you can imagine. So there was an affinity group. There was an affinity group. I mean, there's still, I believe, entertainers, credit union in Los Angeles, right? I mean, so there was always something that kind of was catalytic to starting it out. That was roughly 10, 15 years ago. Today, there's less than a thousand banks that have a billion in assets and below. So part of it is there's not that bank anymore for you to kind of go in and walk into. So I want to start there because- So it changed. Yeah, so it changed. So I, I don't want to blame it, on, obviously, on any of the consumers because the truth is they had a lot more, you know, I'd say opportunities or a lot more banks that they could just see and visually say, okay, this may be somewhere I should go. So technology then played another role. And look, we knew in banking years ago that the bank was going to become somewhat commoditized. And what we mean by that is make the ATMs better. Like when you look at that ATM or that money machine or whatever you call it, it can do a lot more than what you can see. 
I mean, there could be a person that could pop up on it. They could walk, <laughs> they could walk you through a home loan. They could walk you through a business loan. But we as consumers are not ready for all the power that's inside of that. So you're saying it became more of a tech business. It became more of a tech business. But that's low touch. It's not touching it's low the touch. customer. It's low touch. And that doesn't help with most people that really right. don't know. Right. So then if you add that, then the consumer became low touch. They don't want to touch a bank. I mean, my daughters went, I went and opened a bank account for them and like, dad, we've been here 45 minutes. Why are we here? But that's because they don't know what that person is supposed to help you with. That's exactly right. Let's get there. So I think what has happened is you kind of have these layers. Everybody generally cares about the first layer. That's the low touch layer. How fast can I make a transaction? How fast can I get Take my money? Take a picture of my check. Take a deposit. picture. Let me go in and out, in and out, in and out. There's a second layer to banking and a third layer. And those are the two layers that, you know, more of what you're referencing. The second layer is where the bank says, hey, this is what you want to do. I mean, obviously you're describing, I'd like to get married. I'd like to have kids. I'd like to move. I'd like to not get married. I'd like to travel, whatever you're going to say. And then that bank helps you. And then the third level is like a crisis level, right? And crisis is two sides. There's good crisis and bad crisis. So good crisis could be, I just want $10 million. I like to protect it, right? So a lot of times people will say, well, I can only get my money insured to $250,000. That is not true at all. You can go into a bank and you could tell the bank, hey, I'd like to have all of this insured. They can literally do something. It's called CDRs, where bank splits the money into different accounts, not at their bank, at other banks. It's all electronic. I did not know that, by right? the way. All electronically, and all your money can be insured. I've been told a million times they can't split my money. Of course so. they can. Of course they can. Wow. Right. So that's one thing. And then the other side is the real catastrophe, right? It's like, what happens if there is doomsday? What if there really was a run on the bank? And that banker can guide you. They can say, look, you can put your money here, here, and here. And these are things like, for example, treasury. Treasury, right? yes. Yeah. We the can government. Do- it's so weird. Like, I'll talk to people and they're like, well, you know, this is a little while ago. Interest rates are low. And I'm like, well, there's these things called I-series bonds that match with inflation. What does that mean? That means that as inflation goes up, your money goes up. You're basically loaning to the government and the government is borrowing from you. So as inflation goes, you know, adjusts higher or low, you move with it. But it's guaranteed by Treasury, right? And so like, so like literally, it's so funny. I was talking to my dad and of course I got him to do it. And he's like, I'm getting paid like 9%. And I was like, uh, yeah, dad, you know, I'm like you can do this and the government can guarantee you. But those are things like community bankers used to tell you like, hey, you know, there's not one treasury bond, by the way. It's not one treasury bill. There's a whole variety of them. And this is the different ones that you can go to. I think what you're telling me right now is that things have gotten almost worse. Well, I mean, I think it's gotten worse for those who don't know. But everybody doesn't know. Well, I mean, I just don't yeah. think, I don't think a lot of young people know any of this. Yeah. I would agree that it's unfortunate that it's become super transactional. So going back to how should I intersect yep. and communicate with my bank yep. and how should I feel? Like you've also said to me, some people just throw all their money in the bank and yeah. that's a stupid thing too. <laughs> so how should I be thinking of my bank in today's world? Yeah. Do I put enough money in up to 250, but really maybe not have all my money in there? Because as you've told me, the bank is making money on you and you're yeah. not making money on the money. Yeah. Yeah. So what should we know? I think from a personal perspective, it's a pie chart. And the pie chart is you need your rainy day money, which generally is the money that's in a bank account. You need some money for kind of your ins and out, which is generally called a checking account. And then going back to banks, you need a bank that also offers broker services, financial advising services, and different things like that. So then they can take that money and they can put it into different types of investments and different things that might work for you. 
I also encourage people to think about things a little bit differently. So sometimes I'll meet someone and they'll say something like, oh, I paid off such and such. And I'm like, what'd you pay off? Like I was talking to someone the other day. I paid off my student loans. I said, what's the interest rate? He said three. And I was like, well, you know, you could have gotten I-series bonds at nine. You could have done this at six. You could have done this at four. And, you know, you would have made a net 1%, 4%, 5%. So those are the things that we're also So you're saying to play with money. That's the part that I think is exciting. That's right. And nobody ever teaches us. is like, it's almost like kids talk about money like, oh, it's math. Ugh. Yeah. yeah, But exactly. they're not talking about it like, if you take that money and put it here, you can make money for this and this. Right. And by the way, I suffer from that too. Yeah. Because I own a lot of buildings and I tend to pay them off because I am insecure. And I know you would say to me, are you crazy? Right. Leverage that money. That's right. But also there are some times in life where you just want to sleep at night. The money should be making you money all the time. And that's I go back right. to that's my right. mentor Always. that said to me, make money while you sleep. <laughs> that's right. The money has to make money always. And that's not so easy for normal Joes like us. You say that to me and it sounds so doable. Yeah. But who is that person in the bank? Again, I go back to, am I supposed to go find that person? Yeah. They're not finding me. I think you definitely go and look for the person. So what do I do? I go into a bank and I say, I need a personal banker. You walk into a bank and say, I need a personal banker. And then you're looking for someone that makes sense to you. It's the dating game, banking style. Do I like this person? Can I connect? Do they have some semblance of what I'm looking for? And what I mean by that is, well, they understand you. If they've never had a Latina as a client, Probably not the best banker for you. You're not going to connect on other things because this is just a person. You're just two people talking. It's just the subject matter is about banking. I want to go back to what you said about paying off real estate. The very first thing I said on the pie chart was rainy day fund, right? And so when you really think about life, how long has it ever been? I was reading a story in the Wall Street Journal this morning about rebuilding Ukraine. And they were talking about the business opportunities, $750 billion. They've already started. The war's not even over. Let's just... Be real about that. Now, that's a subject we don't want to talk about. But my whole point is that, you know, it's already starting to rebuild in 12 months. So let's say 24 months is the longest you're going to be without resources. At that point, stop paying off the building, right? Start investing. Whatever makes you feel comfortable at night. And for some people, it's to pay all their debt off, which makes me hyperventilate. See? <laughs> but, but, but see, I love hearing that. <laughs> let's go back to minorities yeah. and people that come to this country are raised to be goody two-shoes. And again, we don't know the system. And the system is based on debt. That's right. (laughs) And that it's okay to have debt. But to minorities and to many immigrants, that is like a mortal sin. But I will tell you this, Everett, I've made five times the money in real estate than in my TV life, right? But pretty much everything is paid off during the pandemic. No one paid me rent. No one. Right. Almost three years. That's right. If I didn't have all that money, cash, to carry all those buildings, I would have lost my buildings. Yes, right. I'm also lucky because I went and found a real estate bank yeah. and they would have loaned me the money. But sure. my point is it wouldn't have been pretty. That's right. So you also have to hedge your desire for risk and all of that. Right. But I do understand now that I did a lot of things wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like that money could have even made me more money. I think it comes down to that, right? It is numbers and it is sense of security. So the sense of security is how many months do you want in the bank? The other side of it, having a good banker would have probably said, hey, why don't you have a line of credit? We won't touch it. Or this credit card that has X you know, limit on it, we won't touch it, but that's part of your rainy day solution. So now you had 
you know, let's say 36 months, and then you had another two years available to you in these other sources. And those are the things that the community banker is supposed to do. And then again, going back to your question, I do think it's a two-way street. I think the banks have got to do a better job of reaching out to the community. I think community's got to find the right person that, you know, kind of fits their needs and understands where they're headed, where they're going. So going back to this whole debt thing and, you know, that debt is not a bad word. After the pandemic, what have we learned also about, you know, the need for debt? And like for you, so many banks turn down people that don't have a lot of credit or don't have assets or whatever. What's different about Lendistry and how do you help people get those loans and how do you make them okay to get those loans? When I think about debt and when I think about underwriting, you know, systemically minorities have not been allowed to do it, right? And so what is to do it? One part of it is own things, like have buildings, have houses. And I mean, they're literally parts of the country where there are deed restrictions for minorities owning. And God forbid, hopefully none of those are still around. But, you know, so when you think about the it, you have to start saying, okay, in my underwriting, you know, algorithm or data or matrix, what is in this, right? Like, is it saying that you have to have real estate knowing that this community hasn't been able to have real estate? Because that doesn't make any sense. Then you got to say, well, what's in here? Like, is it all white male? Because if it's all white male, then guess what? A Latina is going to get declined. And it might not necessarily be a race thing. It could literally be zip codes, sensor track. There's so many ways. How so, you get profiled. How you get pro- profiling. There's profiling. The thing that people have to understand is sometimes it's not even overt. Like, it's not direct. It's just that you don't understand that if you lend to everybody in California, when you put a loan in in Texas, the computer's going to say, that's a bad loan. It has no idea. It just says everything in California. So the algorithms. The first answer to your question is our approach is just trying to understand what's in the data and is the data right? Or who we want to lend to. The second thing we do is we really focus on different programs. Like the state of California just got $1.1 billion to help small businesses with those who lack collateral, those who might have weaker credit profile. State of New York, $500 million. $10 billion came out of from Treasury to help all these states. It's like a counter program or a competitive program to SBA. And SBA is great too. Wow. But most people don't know that the states have a counter program okay, to it. When you and I were doing the SBA thing and yep. helping the SBA, I didn't even realize how much money the SBA had. Like I think of all the businesses I've started, I never got money from the SBA. I didn't even right. know. Yeah. And now you're telling me this. I haven't read anything about this. Yeah. I mean, so what do you have to be an insider to know all this stuff? Well, I mean, I think you you definitely have to study a little bit, but this goes back to your comment about the banker, right? You should have a lender, you should have a banker, you should have a financier. You need people on your team. If you're going to be a small business and sometimes it has nothing to do with what you're doing right now. Sometimes it's about where you're going or where you're headed so that these people can be consultants to you to tell you what you should do. Like when I was sitting in the bank, I'd say, look, you might not be able to get a loan from us today, but I want you to open a bank account. I want you to open a credit card. I want when you get your auto loan because you're basically just building up your resume with the bank. Now that I'm in kind of the non-bank fintech world, I'm saying, okay, we need to think about really the design and the plan because we could lend you up to $5 million, but we got to know what you're actually using it for. And you got to show these things as we lend it to you. We might lend you $50,000 every single time to $5 million, or we might lend you $5 million. I don't know what's right for you, but I'm going to give you some guidance and our team's going to give you some guidance and kind of say, this is what you need to do. But to you know your earlier point, SBA, USDA, FHA, all the A's have a ton of money. I mean, a ton. <laughs> If there's an A at the end, there's a ton of cash. What I've realized for me, right, yeah. is, and I don't think anybody says this, 
in all financial services, like if you have insurance yep. and you don't have an insurance broker that you talk to regularly or like everybody says, oh, I can give you cheaper car insurance. But if you don't have someone that you talk to the day you have a crisis, yep. just like with the bank, if you don't have a person that knows you, yep. good luck getting the money. I mean, I was going to happen. I was on the phone with an insurance person today and it was with one of our clients and, you know, they'll remain nameless and they're doing an event. And so the insurance is for the day of the event, but the insurance leader or broker, who's really a consultant at the end of the day said, well, wait a second, when exactly do the trucks come for the event? When do the supplies come? Because don't you want your equipment insured that day? And by the way, I know the show is over at 11 PM, but don't they leave at 3 AM? Don't you still want to insure during that time? And then the insurance person was like, well, what happens if an artist is on stage and they kick a cup and it hits somebody in the head? <laughs> right? I mean, like, when you start going, you just started going, just started going and going and going. I'll tell you where I've gone off the <laughs> event because I've made TV shows. Yeah. And you insure the TV show production and then the insurance runs out like two months later. Yeah. And then they tell you, well, if you don't insure it for another year, if later on That's right. someone comes back to you and says, during that show, I had this problem. That's right. You're not insured anymore. And it goes back to the bank as well. There's so many little loopholes and stuff. Yeah. And I go back to, you do have to build a team. But yeah. also what I've realized too is the last year that your team has to change. Because yeah. there are times in my life, for instance, that I've been a TV producer yeah. or a TV executive. Yeah. And the kind of help I've needed in a bank or with insurance and all that is for TV. That's right. The last few years, I've been more of a real estate investor, developer, whatever. Yep. Thank God that I had this banker yeah. friend for 25 years. She's like, you're with the wrong bank. Yeah. <laughs> you need to go be with a real estate bank because you're not operating correctly. These That's people right. loan money to TV shows. These people loan money to, to real estate. And so again, I'm just trying to make sure that we really inform, especially young people are coming out of college, don't even have a clue. All they do is everything yeah. low touch. That's right. And don't have any idea who's going to help them even think this stuff out. That's right. I mean, going back to the insurance, it's like, you know, you get home insurance and you go for the cheaper price. And I'm going to add something to what you said. Sometimes it's about your evolution in life, but sometimes it's the little stuff. Like for me, location. Like when I lived on the East Coast, the amount of times that I bought flood insurance and what I didn't realize is that if you have a flood, they don't cover it anything unless it's bolted to the ground. So the TV like that I thought was insured wasn't insured. The pool table that I thought was insured wasn't insured. And so again, it could be location. It could be family dynamics. It could be you evolve in your life and you get it older. There's so many different things that you kind of need that consultant financial person for. And I think we should also add that it is not just the banker. It is the insurance provider. It is the lawyers. There's so many times in life where you're evolving, right? You might want to trust. There's just all these different things that I think about. But without that, you're really walking through the world blind. You might have saved pennies, but when it comes to the big stuff, because all we're really talking about is the big stuff. It's when the big stuff hits you and all you have to do is live life and it, a big thing will hit. It's just the way life goes. That And you start to realize, wow, I saved $10 per year or $100 per year, but I just got this $10,000 issue, $100,000 issue, whatever it might be. Pennywise found foolish. Exactly. What do you say to your kids that my kid and I need to know? <laughs> so the first thing I try to teach them about finance is, of course, passive and active income. That's probably a whole different session. Just briefly explain that to them. Yeah. So what I say is you're going to have your job that you're going to make money from. And then I want you to start having investments that you make money from. We already said money. While we sleep. 
when he doesn't sleep. So those are like the fundamental things I say to my kid. Then I tell them- And the, that's a key to life. That's a key to life. I'm going to be talking to him about diversification. So I'm going to be talking about diversification of assets, diversification of friendships, diversification of experiences. I'm going to be really, really keen on that because I think as they get older, they're going to say to me, dad, I just made this money in Tokyo. I just made this money in Brazil. Not to be like stuck in this microcosm of the United States. It's a world market. Yeah. Yep. I mean, some of the biggest entrepreneurs take a good idea from the US and they take it to another country, right? I mean, Uber in Brazil. I think there's a huge opportunity for that still today. And then I think the other thing that they're going to capitalize on, which I think the world is starting to figure out, is minority business is extremely profitable. And it's funny because I was talking to one of our friends and they were talking about investing in emerging markets, which I have no arguments about. But I said, you know, you can invest in emerging market in Here. the U.S. And they were like, what are you talking about? I was like, black and brown people. When we say that an emerging market is powerful, like let's say India or China, because they have one group of people that buys from themselves. Are you thinking that we're that market because we're buying from each other or buying from ourselves? I think it's because the consumerism dollars have already shown trillions of dollars. You don't have to guess. The babies have been born and they're spending the money. If we go to maybe not. China and India, but if we went to a third world country, fourth world country, we got to hope that it catches on. You don't have to hope. The, the stats are already there. Trillions of dollars to spend. Second thing is you don't have to worry about bureaucracy. I mean, we have bureaucracy. <laughs> you don't have to worry about bureaucracy in the same way, like military coups or a massive transition in government that causes a, a real stir up. Like, you know that the power dynamics. And then the third thing is you actually can really leverage relationships. And so I think that's what is now starting to be realized like, okay, there's this whole community that's been dormant, all for bad reasons, lack of access to capital, but they do have the power to spend the money. They do have the power to be engaged and we can literally change their life overnight with our relationships. So it's finding the hole within the country that's still undervalued. That's right. And it's still there is what you're saying. That's exactly right. And that is what corporations are saying too, that they realize that's the buyer that they still need. We're going to do many podcasts about small business <laughs> yeah. and how to do that. But I want to make sure, even though this is very micro, I want to make sure that people leave with the thought of, if you're a young person and you have yeah. no money, you still don't even know what net worth is and what you might have a hundred bucks in the bank. Yeah. How do you have the self-esteem to walk in a bank? Because what I'm hearing you say is that we have to create a relationship with a bank yeah. and we have to use the bank to be our free consultant because they're making money off of us. That's right. How do I walk into a bank and say, I need a personal banker when I'm a kid that just got out of college and I have five cents to my name. And like, are they really going to pay attention to me? I mean, they're really not. Yeah. How do I do that? So first thing is you're going to walk into a bank and you're going to say, do you offer minimum accounts? Which if you only have $100, that's less than $100. Second thing you're going to do is you're going to think about ways in which you can start depositing money. My first investments were $25 a month. That's all I had. It was what's called an automatic asset builder. I don't know what they call it today, but it basically meant every single month they were going to take a certain amount of money from me. And for me, that was 25 bucks. And then I think the third thing is you're going to start interviewing the bankers. You're going to start seeing which ones you can connect with because there's probably a young banker inside of that you could start building a relationship with. And they're going to say, hey, during our lunch or during our training, they told us about this. I just figured I should share it with you. Most banks have some type of either online or in-bank learning. You know, they'll do it on a Saturday morning. Or 
there's going to be some sessions that they offer. Go to them. Same way Home Depot invites you in and says, learn how to do it yourself project. The banks do have that. Well, and I have to say, I'm saying this also to the parents of kids because so many kids leave school and the parents kind of forget that their kids don't know anything. That's right. Right. And, you know, I've taken my kid to the bank and made sure that he knows all this stuff. But also, even as you get bigger in your life. Yep. The bank is taking the money and investing it and making a lot of money yeah. in your money. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't think people understand it. And literally, it starts with a simple question. Do you have any no-fee accounts? It could be, yes, we'll move your money over here. But you got to ask. Does everybody really understand that whether you have a job or whatever, then you have to take your game to a higher level? That's right. Because also, if you're not asking, like so many people tell me that they pay at the bank because they don't know how to keep money in minimums, why are you paying fees to the bank when they're making money off of you? Yeah, you got it. You so the relationship that. with a bank and with a banker is key to the rest of your life. And also maybe moving off that first bank into bank number two or bank number three, that's a specialist in what it is you're going to do. That's exactly right. And it doesn't necessarily mean you leave your money or you take your money out. You decide whatever you want to do, whatever is right for you. Because again, that could be a bank that does home loans. One day you might need it. There could be another bank that does auto loans. One day you might need it, right? So you might have bank accounts and different relationships with different ones, but it first starts with having the relationship. And also don't do all of the loans with one bank. The rates might be different when another bank is a specialist in that kind of thing. That's right. So you have to shop around for loans. Shop around for loans, shop around for relationships, and banks get bought (laughs) and things change. So you got to be ready for that too. My son and I talk about this a lot because when you're in school, they teach you math in a memorization of formulas instead of really putting it, you know, kind of in the context of their real life. Right. And so when you put it in the context of your life, you're like, Oh, exactly what we were saying. I could take money that I have to pay over here, the student loans and I can (laughs) invest it in this and I can make, and then I have a 1% spread that I can use to go on vacation. That's exactly right. Then it becomes fun. That's right. And that's why I think, The most important thing, and that's why I said, I love that we started out saying, this all sounds really boring, but it's actually really fun. That's right. I mean, once you do it and once you start making money and you start to see your wealth grow and things like that, then, you know, then you're like really excited and you start talking to your friends about it and like you can do online chats. There's so many different ways it can go. But I think that's when it starts to become exciting to people. I think, again, at first, to your point, it's like math. It's like geometry. It's like, I don't know, organic chemistry. There's these subjects you just never want to take, right? And, right? and finance happens to be one of them for most people. And that's why I love hanging out with you. To be a money maker, right. you have to be good with your money and start with your financial relationship with your bank. That's right. That's how it all starts. Right? Hold on. Moneymaker will be right back. Let's get back to the show. Everett Sands, we're back together. Uh, we, we, You and I spoke recently about kind of what, what a bank is and how do we all deal with our banks and onboard on our, with our banks. And yet in the middle of all this, the whole banking world started freaking out. The SVP thing happened yeah. and, and I've been calling you like a crazy person uh, to find out what's going on. So I thought we'd get back together. And of course, you know, cause I've called you that for me, it's, it's triggered all my PTSD about leaving my right. communist regime and that my money might disappear. So can you kind of give us a perspective on what is happening with the banking system? What happened 
a few weeks ago, and then it kind of got saved. And what's coming now? Because now it looks like it's beginning to crumble again. Yeah. What happened is what happens frequently in banks is that they make a decision on what they're going to invest, which quite frankly is no different than what you and I do, Nelly. And the way I tend to think about it is like a pie chart. And then the pie chart, you know, if you if you kind of had some of those old school people, they say, well, do you want low risk or medium risk or high risk, right? And then, and and that's kind of still the way it is in the consumer world. And then they put things, they being your financial advisors or yourself, you put things based on you know how you want your slice of the pie to be, right? Um, and and quite frankly, when a bank gets deposits, it's no different. They then turn around and say, okay, we have all of these deposits which we can now leverage which, uh, to make money on. And then they put it into low risk, medium risk, or high risk. Now, most banks generally deal with a low to, I would say, low medium. They, they, don't, they rarely deal with high. Uh, but you do have some banks that decided to be what they define as innovators, what others might define as a little bit of high risk. And so you had a couple of culprits that, that, that really kind of set the stage of what we've seen recently. Um, one was a bank uh, called Silver Lake down in La Jolla, California, and they invested in crypto. They literally called themselves a crypto bank. And so mm-hmm. if we were in our pie chart, and we, were, we were looking at our shape, crypto would be high risk. Mm-hmm. Another one that you've heard a lot about is Silicon Valley Bank, and they were investing in technology. And technology probably is a medium to high risk, but when you do startup technology, that throws you in kind of the high risk. So so now they got a, their slice of the pie and they, they've got some things that are considered low risk and they've got some things that are considered medium, some things that are considered high. So let's just talk about the high for a second. Over the last 12 months, crypto has not done very well. Um, yes, it's done well kind of sometimes day over day. And yes, it's had some bounces. But if you look at it over the last 12 months, it hasn't done very well. And then if you take an asset like crypto, which hasn't been around for a long time, there's a lot of, you know, connotation out there, and I would say negative connotation specifically, where, and and I don't necessarily know if it's all well-deserved, but that's what happens when people don't understand what it is, right? And so crypto is one of those things where everyone doesn't fully understand it. And then blockchain fits into that bucket too. They kind of get thrown together, either though they're two separate things that we can have a whole nother podcast about what they are. But for now, let's just think about them as things people don't understand. And so whenever there's something that you don't understand and it loses value, it causes panic, right? And so what you had is this part of the pie chart all of a sudden lost its value. Now, if you and I lose our value in our stock, we say, okay, we lost value. Maybe we'll make it up somewhere else. And we're allowed to do that. That's mm-hmm. Everyone's allowed to invest any way that they want to. When a bank loses value, there's a, what I would just call a threshold where they can't lose it because it wasn't their money, right? It's the deposit money. It's your money and my money, Nelly. Right, so they're not actually allowed to lose value, and if they do lose value, that causes what is what has been called a run on the bank. People take mm-hmm. their money out because they're saying, "Okay, I put in a hundred dollars. I expect to at least get a hundred dollars back. You know, I'd love to get a little bit of savings, so maybe it's a hundred dollars and fifty cents <laughs> um, based on bank rates today. But at least I want my hundred dollars back. I never thought I'd put a hundred dollars and get eighty back." And so that leads people to panic, and that panic is called a run on the bank. So when that piece of the pie chart crypto happened, then people started to say, where else are there banks that have crypto? And two banks specifically came to mind. One was Silicon Valley Bank, also called SVB, 
and the other one is called Signature Bank. So what happened with these two banks is the truth is they did not have a lot of crypto, but they had enough to cause people to pay attention. So let's talk about the other part of the pie chart. The other part of the pie chart is called low and medium risk. But low and medium risk are based on what you can sell your asset for. So let's make this up. Let's say that Nelly and Everett go out and we buy, we have $100 in cash. And someone says, I give you $100 for your $100 in cash. We say, okay, we're even. No problem there. We're good. Let's say Nelly and Everett go buy a car, a brand new car. Nelly, what happens when you buy a brand new car the, the next day after you roll up it the It depreciates lot? the second you, you, you ride it. You lose value. Okay. There are two ways that things lose value. One is that that asset is not worth as much. Two, there's another asset that looks just like it that's worth more. So let's just keep our car analogy going. Let's say Nellie and Everett buy a 2022 Toyota Camry. It looks beautiful. It's amazing. And in 2023, Toyota comes out with a new Camry that is completely different looking. Which one's worth more? The new one. The new one, right? The new one, the 2023. So now let's go into the banking world. The banks have a loan that looks amazing. It's at 4% interest a year ago. Now there's a new loan, same characteristics that has 8% interest. The 8% is the 2023 Toyota Camry. The 4% is the 2022. So now Nelly and Everett are looking at these loans and saying, well, will we buy the 4% loan or will we buy the 8% loan? And we're probably going to buy the 8% loan because we want the one that has the shinier, has more value, right? So then what happens to the 4% loan? The truth is, is that the 4% loan still can be sold, but it's not worth $100 anymore. Now it's worth $96. But in this case, isn't, you the gotta, four, isn't the 4% loan worth more because it's less expensive? No. So think about it like you're an investor and I offer you the same investment. I offer you a oh, the investor wants return. the 8% because you get more money. Ah, uh, yes. Got so if, if you have, are a bank and that investor says, I want an 8% return, the only way mm. you can make that return 8% because, because you charge 4% is you got to sell the loan for less. Mm. Right? So the $100 now becomes 96 because you're you're giving up 4% Got plus it. the 4% interest to get to 8%. Okay, so now let's go back to our bank pie chart. If we have all these loans at 4%, you start losing and money. the market has loans at 8%, I've lost money. So now let's go back to Silicon Valley Bank. I got my high return pie, piece of the pie that's lost value, crypto. Mm -hmm. And I've got my loans or my other assets that have lost value because they don't have the same interest rate. So let's 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 back up a little bit and let's talk about what really what happened to Silicon Valley. Because I want you to understand the dynamics. I just don't want you to think the people were careless. There's no doubt about it. But I, I want to bring it real world because this actually happens to some of your listeners. Mm -hmm. Maybe not to the scale, but the same thing happens. Have you ever seen when people win the lottery, Nelly? What happens to them? <laughs> they get crazy. <laughs> They Let's go quit crazy. our job. Let's go buy stuff. Let's do stuff. That's right. That's right. But the bottom line is they have too much money and they don't know what to do with it. Right. 
So if you go back to 2020 and 2021, if you remember the stock market got really, really hot. And when it got really, really hot, shares of stock soared. Like for example, let's take a Zoom, $40 to $400. Now, if you were an owner or an employee of a company and your stock went from $40 to $400, you might sell that stock, right? So think about it. If you sold your stock, where would you put your money? In the bank. And what's the bank that financed the most technology companies that were soaring? Silicon Valley Bank. So in 2020 and 2021, Silicon Valley Bank, quote unquote, hit the lottery. All of their customers had excess cash and they got billions of dollars that came into their bank and they weren't planning for it. So they did try to do something safe and they bought what are called treasuries. And those are also, there's another word for them called held to market maturities or HTMs. So they did, they were responsible at first. They had all this money, literally tens of billions of dollars. They put it in the safest thing possible because their pie chart for low was treasuries. So they put the safest thing possible. Now here's where they made the mistake. And I want to be clear, a lot of this happens to a lot of people. We have 401ks and mutual funds and we don't watch what's going on. This just happened to people with billions of dollars. They didn't watch what was going on. So interest rates were rising. Chairman Powell from the Federal Reserve said, I'm going to raise interest rates. For the last 12 months, he's raised interest rates 5.5%. So now let's go back to our example. You got a 4% maturity and an 8% maturity. Which one does the investor want to buy? They want to buy the 8%. So they had all these treasuries at four, and, and I'm just using this as an example, but they all lost value because the market was at eight. So wrap this to summarize this. They had these crypto assets. They were losing money. They weren't losing their own money. They were losing depositors money because of what happened with Silver Lake. People started paying attention. Then what happened is interest rates were climbing. So all this money they had in held to market maturities or treasuries, those things lost value. And so then they needed to raise capital because they can't put the depositors money at risk. And so that's when people said, I'm not going to let my $100 become $80. I'm going to take my money out. They lost the equivalent, if I remember correctly, is somewhere in the range of about $70 billion or $40 billion in deposit today, in one day. And that caused the regulators to say that you need to close. And so, okay, so that's so, how we lost SBB. So you're kind of giving me a stomach ache, and I, I hear what you're saying, and I understand <laughs> it. Yeah. But so now I'm sure. not, I'm not thinking like the bank. I'm thinking like me, the depositor, right? Yes. So yes. How would how the hell would I know all this is going out? So I guess I, let me let me hear see if I'm hearing correctly. In the case of that of the SVB bank, does that mean that a lot of the depositors lost their money because they had more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is the only thing that is guaranteed by the federal government? Is it because they had too much money in the bank? Was that the mistake that they made yes. that you should never have more than two fifty unless you figure something else out? It's a great question. Ninety-seven percent of the depositors had more than two hundred and fifty thousand. And so, when I give you the example of a hundred dollars going to eighty dollars, it is the amount over two hundred fifty thousand that became at risk. And so, you had depositors saying, "I'm taking my money out." And some depositors put, let's say they had 500,000, they put 250 in a chase and 250,000 in Wells Fargo to, sell, to, to protect themselves. 
some depositors just again saying they have 500,000 they just took 250 out just to make sure that the amount they left in SVB was covered some people you know took all their money out but to answer your question directly it was that amount above 250 that was at risk so when i so say that so if i had more than 80, 250 and yeah. i didn't take it out i'm now screwed is that what you're telling me no you you could have been screwed you could have been screwed that weekend the the federal reserve uh, made a decision to give to one cover everybody no matter what their balance was so that kind of protected the bank was already done so that happened the bank closure if i remember correctly was thursday or friday the the federal reserve uh took action on sunday and so by monday those depositors who weren't able to pull their money out were covered but if you're asking about a traditional banking environment you have two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of insurance coverage so that's the number one thing we should all be no matter what bank you're in going forward, not have more than $250,000 in, in an account? Or is it total? You can have, it's $250,000 in an account. You can have multiple accounts at the bank. And you can also, um, you can do something called a deposit sweep account. It's kind of sophisticated, but at the end of the day, what's really happening is money's moved from different accounts to, imagine banks having a deal. So Nelly Bank and Everett Bank having a deal that we're going to, swipe deposits and we're going to move money over. This means that the individual client doesn't have to come in and move the money. We're doing it for them. And if you do deposit sweep accounts, then essentially what that does is that can protect you as well. How is it that because the government came in and saved these people that they couldn't save all these banks? Why? Well, because if you think about the way I would describe it, it's modern social media like Twitter <laughs> meets online banking, right? So if you think about back in the day, especially the days that you that you were referencing, like, hey, I'm kind of afraid of, you know, what happened in the past. What you were really afraid of is everybody was standing in line and you had to be at work and you couldn't stand in line. Right. And what would happen is people would stand in line and they would take their money out. And and that still kind of happens today. You've seen pictures of that over the, you know, over the last couple of months when people have done that. But that's not the way most people transact business. Most people have their cell phone in their hand and they move their money. Right. They take it out. They put in another bank account or something like that. And so old school, you didn't have online banking. Now we have online banking. Now, if you have two bank accounts, you literally could transfer money instantly between those two accounts. And then you had the frenzy that's created by social media, right? So the connectivity that people have is has evolved so much more. So yes, you and I talked on the phone, but quite frankly, you could have sent out, you know, something on, on social media that could have told a million people, right? What you and I talked about on the phone, that wouldn't, that didn't happen before. 20 years ago, we had to make 1 million phone calls or, you know, an email with, you know, 1 million people in the, in the subject line, excuse me, in the two line for that information to get out. Now the information flows so fast and so readily and then adding modern technology like online banking. And that's why, there was no way for that bank to catch up. So just to give you the technically what happened, the bank was roughly about a billion shorter where the state of California's regulators wanted them to be. They made a decision that they would not open them on Friday morning. Okay, big well, question about you. Since I'm always promoting you and especially to minorities like you. that you are such yeah. an incredible lender, you don't have a traditional bank because you're not taking deposits, right. but you're loaning money. How come this hasn't closed you down? In, in the same in the same yeah. way 
Yeah. So the truth is, is if all our eggs are in one basket, I'm no different than the depositor and how the depositor thinks. In our company, we do borrow from banks. Uh, we, we borrow from a lot of banks, about 25 of them. And part of it, someone will, might say, well, why do you borrow from 25? Well, you're seeing it. It's something called market conditions, right? We have to protect ourselves from downside risk too. So the same reason why the depositor might say, I'm going to have multiple bank accounts. We say we have multiple lenders. Mm-hmm. And the truth, so the, the other side of the coin, which you and I will probably talk about as we go along in life, is there is some real risk that's going to happen in the technology and innovation world because Silicon Valley Bank was doing a great job of funding uh, technology, innovation, and quite frankly, Silicon Valley. I don't know the bank that's going to take that place. So Lendistry is, is we are okay and we're happy because we're a technology company that was not necessarily relying on Silicon Valley Bank. But let's be clear, there are a lot of companies that are. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see who those companies are able to get their loans from going forward. Wow. Okay. So now I, I, I want to end with what is the future looking like? Should we be afraid? I mean, you and I spoke, there's a lot of panic out there about the recession or worse uh, about the economy, about maybe the dollar being devalued. You know, you're in this world. What do you think we should all be thinking about both from a banking point of view and just what to expect in the economy in general in this country and how should we hunker down? Yeah, I, I think the first thing is we got to get ourselves educated, listening to this show, uh, reading more news to understand about the different banks, watching the banks. Look, if, if we go to that example that I've made of, you know, having a loan that's less value, there are a lot of banks with that. I mean, there are a lot of banks that did 2%, 3%, 4% home mortgages. Let's be clear, if mortgages today are 6%, those loans don't have the same value. Whether it's a residential loan or commercial loan, it doesn't have the same value. And so I say all that to say, I want to take a little bit of the fear out and just understand that that is reality right now, that there are banks that where their assets are not worth as much. That's just the way it goes. If you have low interest rates and high interest rates, your loans lose value. If you have low high interest rates and then low interest rates, your loans gain value. That's just the way it works. Right. No different than if you decide to buy a car, the moment you roll it off the, the car lot, it has lost value. So that does happen in everyday friends. So I want to say that so that we don't panic too much. Now, I think in terms of self-preservation and things you should think about, we should have multiple bank accounts. Because if a bank is about to close or you do see the warning signs, you should be able to transfer your money because that'll de-stress you knowing that you have another bank. It's probably wise these days to choose one of the top 10 banks. Um, you know the usual suspects in the names. And, and it's just good financial discipline right now because of the environment that we're in. So I think if you, if you do that, if you have kind of a dose of reality, it says, look, things lose value all the time. I'm going to make sure I stay educated. I'm going to make sure I stay on top of it. And I'm going to have multiple banking accounts. I think you cover yourself. I think the other thing when you talk about a recession is you always have to remember that everything in any economy, there's winners and losers. If you look at the Inflation Reduction Act right now, they're talking about energy improvement. They're talking about, you know, from Department of Energy, they're talking about the Department of, excuse me, Environmental Protection Agency is talking about doing different things to modernize and evolve. Uh, you have USDA talking about wool, which really means food to table in terms of, of food manufacturing. I say all this to say that there's money is flowing to certain uh, agencies and certain industries. And so if you're an investor, 
or you're thinking about your next job, or you're thinking about where to get yourself smart on, you know, these are some of the things you want to think. Now, I don't know if you're a home improvement contractor and you want to make yourself available for people who are going to get electric rebates, right? We've all know them from kind of the EV charging stations and cars, but now people are going to get, you know, rebates to put in a new water heater and, and solar panels and things like that. So, you know, whether you're an investor or a worker, you might want to take a look at some of those things. Even if you're in marketing, you might want to think about how you can help people market. Um, so I want to make sure that we're very clear that recession doesn't mean lack of funds. In this particular scenario, it means we need to pay attention to where the funds are headed. And so that will be, you know, the advice I would give to you or any audience member, just to keep your eyes open and pay attention to where the funds are headed. We're going to have a real tight election coming up here, obviously. Um, and, and listen to what they're saying and what, they're, what the politicians say, where they're going to put the money. That'll tell you where to point, point yourself. So are you, so it sounds like you're not feeling a sense of panic about what's coming. No, because if you think about it, money still has to flow. Maybe less money, which is what a recession is, but money still has to flow. So if we think about it in terms of the grand scheme, we're talking about trillions of dollars, right? And if you had, if you had, let's just make it up. If you had 10 trillion and now it's 9 trillion, it doesn't mean the whole world gets obliterated, right? It does mean we have less. It does mean we should, we should monitor our costs and we should try to save more and we should live within our means. By the way, we should be doing that no matter what. <laughs> and it means we have to just have a little bit more focus on where the money's flowing. And, and I think you always say to me too, that in very bad economies, there's always, if you pay attention, we have to be hyper vigilant. There's ways to make money. People make a lot of money in bad economies. Right. Exactly right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sharing with you right now, the people who are in energy efficiency and all the, you know, the, the corner stakes and, and, and the people who are connected to them, they're about to make a lot of money. I mean, the Department of Energy got $100 billion. They usually get like 10. So they got to deploy the capital by December 31st, 2024. So if you know someone in energy or you know anything about energy or you need, or you need to go get your next book, get it about something related to energy and energy efficiency. Because and, and I'm just giving you one of many solutions, but I think this is the one that, you know, is top of mind for me right now. You're the best. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I, I call you so much. Moneymaker is a production of Money News Network. Moneymaker is written and hosted by me, Nelly Galan. Our executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Thanks for listening. See you next time.